let's take a moment to pray together. Um, well, God, uh, again, we thank you for the opportunity we have to um, to worship together, to um, remember your uh, incredible love for us. Uh, specifically, thank you for the mothers in the room and the way they've loved us and that you've used them to love us in our lives. Um, and thank you, God, as Becca prayed earlier, that in the absence of that love, that you are mother to us as well, that you... Uh, that you transcend those categories that we think of you in, and you mother, father, brother, sister us, you are so much bigger than we could ever imagine, God. So it's with that um, in mind that we come to your word this morning, and we ask you, God, to uh, enliven our imaginations about you again. uh, Open us up to God, to revelation and transformation, formation, all the things we come longing for, God, so that as we go out from this place, um, we'd be people formed for um, the work of witnessing to this world that needs us so badly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, we're beginning. You might have noticed in your bulletins. By the way, I'm Jack. I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome to our visitors and guests this morning on this Mother's Day. Um, We're beginning a new series this morning. You might have recognized it on the bulletin with this little uh, sketch uh, drawn to the margins. And so to kind of set this new series up. This is a little bit of a short series we're doing uh, before the summer begins. Um, I was, uh, I ref- to set the series up, this sermon as well, I was uh, reminded of an article I read a few years ago in the New York Times travel um, section. I, I kind of get an email, like a, a lot of emails from the New York Times. I, we used to live on the East Coast, so it's kind of my newspaper in some ways. And so um, this is an article from 2012, called When Heaven and Earth Come Closer by a guy named Eric Weiner. And uh, starts the article this way. It says, travel like life is best understood backward but must be experienced forward, to paraphrase Kierkegaard. After decades of wandering, only now does that pattern emerge to me. I'm drawn to places that beguile and inspire, sedate and stir, places where for a few blissful moments I loosen my death grip on life and can breathe again. Turns out these destinations have a name. Thin places. And then the author goes on to talk about what that, um, that word means, thin place. Sometimes we'll talk about liminal space or the margins, as we're going to use in this series. And he talks about uh, the, how the Celts, the ancient Celts, were thought to have coined that term way, way back. And they used it to describe places like the windswept Isle of Iona, if anyone's been there, um, where it said that heaven and earth are only three feet apart. Um, and so this is a quote from the article, that thin places are locales, where the distance between heaven and earth collapse and we're able to catch a glimpse of the divine. And so by that criteria, there are innumerable thin places in our lives. Certainly, um, Iona, St. Peter's Basilica, Istanbul's sacred, our blue mosque, all these kind of sacred spaces um, that we often visit. Um, There are pedestrian thin places as well, like Discovery Park or uh, the front deck of a Washington State ferry. If you've ever just stood out there and allowed the the sea air kind of to wash over you and look for orcas. Um, that's an amazing experience. Um, or go anywhere in the Cascade or Olympic Mountains, and you'll soon encounter a thin space. That is, if it's not a sunny weekend like this weekend, then it's best to find your favorite coffee shop or bookstore because the mountains are, are not thin. They're like Disneyland these days. It's just like, really, are we doing this? And so Go to a bookstore. That can be a thin place. Like Powell's in Portland is a thin place. If you've ever wanted to touch and feel what a book is like, if you're just addicted to your Kindle, go to Portland, pilgrimage, 
thin place. All which is to say, um, travel to thin places, which, by the way, the author says you don't go to by simply hopping in a car or airplane or read about it in a guidebook. Um, they don't, it doesn't necessarily lead to a grandiose spiritual breakthrough like you might expect. You, you know, sometimes you'll go to the top of a mountain hoping, oh, I'm going to understand the meaning of my life, right? Has anybody ever done that? Because I have. And that doesn't necessarily happen, but it does have other repercussions in our lives. In other words, uh, thin places can cause us to lose our bearings, even for just a moment, so that we find new bearings. Um, they jolt us out of our old ways of seeing the world, help us to see the world in new ways, and they relax us uh, enough that we begin to experience this elusive thing called transformation. So uh, the author says, in thin places, we become our most essential selves. In thin places, we actually understand who we are, who we were created to be. So can you think of a thin place in your life, where you've been, where you like to go? Maybe it's right here, I don't know. But uh, a place that, that you encounter God, as well as your true self, and are able to be more authentic, less encumbered, where the line between heaven and earth is, is just that, is indistinguished, nearly indistinguishable. Just think of that for a moment. So, so the reason I'm sharing this with you and asking that question of you is that in the next weeks, this is what Silas and I, as we teach this series, will be trying to present to you, that Jesus uh, traveled to thin spaces, so to speak, throughout his life. He spent most of his, majority of his ministry on the so-called margins, not in the center, not the periphery. He was in Jerusalem for basically one week of his life, and that's where he was crucified. Spent the rest of his time at the edge, teaching, healing, revealing, and I think giving us, bringing that, that gap between heaven and earth a little bit closer, and giving us not just a, a glimpse of heaven, but answering the prayer, Lord, your kingdom on earth just is in heaven. Giving us a glimpse of heaven on earth, ourselves as we truly were created to be, and who we could be. Um, so today we're going to begin in Matthew 15, and this thin place of Tyre and Sidon. And where Jesus and his disciples, they encounter this woman with a very sick daughter. We're going to explore what we can learn from that encounter. In particular, we're going to look at three facets of the story. So we're going to look at the tenacity of this woman's faith. We're going to look at the double meaning of Jesus' declarations. And then we're going to look at the significance of the wider setting, which we didn't read, but I'll, I'll introduce us to at the very end. Okay? So first, the tenacity of this woman's faith. The story begins, and I invite you to have Matthew 15, because I'm just going to try and teach through it. Um, not quite verse by verse, but nearly, so if, if it helps you to have that in front of you. So the story begins with Jesus withdrawing to this region of Tyre and Sidon, which is, by the way, the only time in Jesus' ministry where he crosses the border of Israel, which is interesting to me. Only time he left Israel. And that's significant because Tyre and Sidon are code names in the Bible for everything that's wrong with the world. So uh, these are God-forsaken places, places that were not only viewed as, viewed as unclean by Jewish people, but also unsafe to Jewish people. We think of this, uh, I don't even know how, I want to put it in, I'm not even going to say. <laughs> you think of the place you, you don't want to go, and that's probably Tyre and Sidon, okay? For me, that's Spokane. That's where I grew up. So just throw all the Spokaneites in the bus, but I'm with you. So I'm under the bus. I'm backing it up. Okay. Boop, boop. Okay. The Canaanites, now, we read that the, this woman is a Canaanite in that region, and so the Canaanites who lived in this region are not only living in a God-forsaken place, they are God's historic enemies. So Canaanite is this frequent adjective in the Bible, Old Testament, um, that, that describes threats to the faith of Israel, paganism, idolatry. So you have Canaanite gods, Canaanite idols, things that represent a complete loss of holiness and purity. 
And so this begs us a question right now. Why is Jesus going there? Like, you start your ministry, uh, you're doing great, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, people love you, and then you go this really questionable, you make this very questionable trip to Tyre and Sidon. Well, as you, as you read the wider context of the story where it's been set, Jesus has been ministering in the Jewish provinces. Um, he's drawing these overwhelming crowds. He's, he's very popular, but he's also very exhausted. And so Jesus and the disciples, they left that place to a place nobody else would follow, right? And so they could have a little bit weekend retreat. Just get away. But they're not, nobody's going to follow them there. They're going to be alone. Nobody's going to know them. They're not going to care. So there's a need for withdrawal there that we all can identify with. Jesus is fully God, fully man. In our busy, overcrowded lives, preoccupied with work and responsibilities, and for the moms in the room, children, and we can identify with Jesus, can't we? We just need to withdraw. Um, but it doesn't work for Jesus. <laughs> like, we're told as soon as he found a quiet house in Tyre, this God-forsaken place, a Canaanite woman from the area, heard of his arrival, had heard something about him, makes her way into the house, the guest house where they're staying, and falls at Jesus' feet. So, though she's a Canaanite, because in though Tyre is this sort of place she would have, I mean, she would have known a great deal about Jesus already. His, the word had spread. And so there's, there's all these reasons that disqualify her, though she knows a lot about Jesus, from even coming into the home. Um, she's a pagan, she's a Gentile, she's a woman, she has a daughter who's unclean, so she's likely been touching her daughter. And that was, you couldn't do that in those days. And, and being with a rabbi, she knows that in every way, according to their customs, she's unclean and unfit to be with Jesus. And yet she doesn't seem to care. <laughs> she enters the house without an invitation, falls down at his feet, and just begins crying out to Jesus, exercise this demon for my daughter. I know you have power to do this. And by the way, the word for crying out in Matthew is, a, is, is this word that means to speak almost too loudly. It's this Greek word, krazo, crazy krazo. It's an automatopoeic word which if, if I said that correctly, it's to croak. It's like the cry of the raven. That's where it's automatopoeic. In, in German, they get kroxen. And so uh, it's this image of a person who's persistently and annoy, annoyingly vociferating. I don't know if you have birds that wake up in the morning. We have a, a robin, a particular robin I want to shoot right now that wakes me up every morning at three. And so that could be this woman right now, if that's, or, or whatever. So interestingly here, Jesus responds to this woman in verse 23 by initially saying nothing. Notice this? He doesn't send her away. He doesn't tell her to be quiet. There's no one, two, three eyes on me, you know. He's just quiet. In the midst of turbulence, he's silent, he's calm, and he's seemingly deep in thought. Um, And so Jesus, the key here is that Jesus' silence in this first moment is a bit of a mystery to us. It's it's, It's not passivity or indifference toward her. It's something else entirely. And here's what that is. It's space, if you read the rest of the story, for this story to unfold. Uh, for things to develop in the story. And for the other actors, remember, he's there with the disciples, for the other actors to act, which they do. Uh, see, the disciples, they're with Jesus, and they're not silent. <laughs> they are, next verse, they come urging Jesus to, to send her away. Send this woman away, because she keeps crying after us. Uh, we're so annoyed by her. They're annoyed, they're just trying to have a weekend retreat, some peace and quiet, you know, morning coffee, quiet time. I don't know if this is your kids, but like, and she keeps interrupting. Can you just get rid of her, Jesus, so we can have time with you? And uh, real quickly, (laughs) 
When the disciples demand that Jesus send this woman away, this is like a little Easter egg, which is, I know, a pun, but let's hang with me. An Easter egg in this story, it indicates uh, to us readers that where this story is actually going, see, a lot of people have misread this story as Jesus being sort of indifferent toward her, and later he's a little bit abrupt with her, abrasive. But actually, this is, this is a little Easter egg for you where it shows that this story is going in a certain direction, and here's my heart for this woman. And he just wants to show the disciples this. See, many of us will remember in the Gospel of Matthew, if, if you know this story, later in Matthew 19, the disciples, or Jesus is being brought some children by their parents for blessing. Remember this story? And the disciples rebuke the parents of these children, and they say, as if to say, this is my paraphrase, how dare you bother Jesus? So they're, they're not being bothered now. They think Jesus is being bothered. He has important things to do, important people to see, and you're not them. That's my paraphrase. And you remember what Jesus says, let the children come to me, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, Matthew nineteen fifteen. And you see, this Canaanite woman is just that. She's bringing her child to Jesus, fulfilling what he says later. And she's not really that extraordinary in that respect. I mean, she's simply a mother. She's asking Jesus for a blessing, pleading with Jesus for the life of her daughter. And in that sense, any parent in the room here, especially the moms, know why she has this burst of boldness. I mean, there's cowards, there's a spectrum. There's cowards, there's regular people, which is most of us. There's heroes, which is maybe a couple of us. And then there's moms, <laughs> which are like on another like spectrum completely. Uh, from Like they're outside of cowardice and courage because uh, like a league of their own, because it, when, it, when one of your children's in jeopardy, you, know, you, do what, you do what you have to do to save them. You don't even question that. It's like you're not even thinking at that moment. Uh, it's not fight or flight. It's just like that's mother bear. Like that's my child. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're normally timid or brave, what your personality is normally. You, you just do it, right? So it's not surprising that this, this mother is bringing, she's pushing past all these cultural barriers, all these religious barriers, maybe some personality barriers, just to get to Jesus, to seek his blessing. And that's the heart of Jesus for this woman. Matthew nineteen fifteen. let the children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. And so that's to set the story. Now, verse 24, Jesus does speak. He's silent. The disciples speak. And then he speaks. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. A statement that curiously causes this woman to draw even closer to Jesus. Verse 25 She's now kneeling before him, and she says, help me, help me. To which Jesus replies very oddly in verse 26, which is where a lot of the um, interpretation on this story happens. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And we're going to look at those two replies from Jesus in a moment, which are actually very surprising when you really uh, really understand them. Before we do, by by way of summary of this first point, this mother, um, now at Jesus' feet, after Jesus' strange replies, comes back, maybe at her, maybe not, gives an even stranger reply. Verse 27, yes, it is, Lord. <laughs> he, she, he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss the dogs. And she says, yes, it is, Lord. <laughs> because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. To which Jesus says in verse 28, woman, you have great faith, literally terrific faith. Go, your daughter's been healed. I mean, this is a, such an amazing story with so much for us. But here's the main point of application. Uh, Tim Keller, who has written a ton on this actual story, actually the Mark version of the story in Mark chapter 7, he says this, in Western cultures, we have nothing like this kind of assertiveness. We have only the assertion of our own rights. 
which is to say, uh, we don't know how to contend unless we're standing on our own rights, unless it's really bothered us. If it's bothered somebody else, probably not, you know? And, and we're standing on our own rights, our own dignity, our own goodness, and saying, this is what I'm owed. This is what I deserve. But this woman is not doing that. She, this is rightless assertiveness, Keller says, something we know very little about. Um, in other words, she's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve, but what I need on the basis of your goodness. Do you see the difference? And that's amazing when you think about it. And to be quite honest, it's, it's the type of faith I know very little about, and you likely do too. Because like, how often are our prayers for healing and the righting of perceived wrongs and, the, uh, and genuine evils in our world derived more from our sense of having our rights violated and overlooked than just appealing to the goodness of God? You know, this, just saying, God, because you're good, just like Abraham in Genesis, because you're good, this needs to happen. I'm not appealing to my sense of how it should be. I'm appealing to your character, your goodness, your grace. This woman doesn't appeal to Jesus on the basis of her worthiness or her rights, but on the basis of God's grace. That's how she does this. She knows she doesn't deserve to be there. She knows there's nothing in her life that, that um, makes it right for her to be in front of Jesus, yet she does it anyway. She's pleading with Jesus for healing, exercising grace in her life, even though she knows she and her daughter don't deserve this. Uh, <laughs> so she has this faith that relentlessly goes after Jesus, not because of who he is, because of, or who she is because of who he is. Do you see this? And in that way, like so many of us, the people that have come before, like Abraham, Jacob, Ruth, this woman is contending with God in faith for grace in light of God's character, not her circumstance. Sort of persistent faith that causes Jesus to say to her, you have such great faith, such genuine faith. And so you see what this means for us. Faith, to use the vernacular, is kind of hanging in there. It's, uh, it's believing that Jesus will deliver. And a great faith, a terrific faith, as Jesus tells this woman she has, overcomes the biggest discouragement of all, which is the discouragement that comes from Jesus' silence toward us or Jesus' first word toward us. You know, it might be a feeling in our hearts that because of some circumstance in our life, God is against us. You see, if you're like most people, most Americans, many of our friends at work, in our neighborhoods, you believe God's against you. God's not for you. He's against. Everybody that believes in God seems to verify that. He's against healing. He's against your dreams. He's against your hopes. He's against peace. He's against genuine intimacy. He's against care of the earth. That's who God is, and it angers you. How can God be against these things? He created these things. And so you read this, Jesus telling someone she's a dog, essentially, and you want to lash out at God and say, how dare you? This is exactly what I expected from God. He's so indifferent towards suffering. He's impatient with faithless people. He's a little unpredictable, frankly. He doesn't seem to care. He's often on the wrong side of history. I'm out. <laughs> Indeed, many of us would have been out. Many of us would have left after Jesus' first reply, enraged that this man who claims to speak on, the beha- on behalf of God could speak this way, Right? But you see, this woman doesn't. <laughs> she leans in. She falls at Jesus' feet. Her faith, and her faith teaches us she doesn't believe those lies. Not about Jesus. She doesn't read into his silence as a sort of bias. Uh, she doesn't read into his response as a sort of um, criticism. Her response, is, is, instead of indifference or enmity, is faith. She says, because she's open to what Jesus is doing and saying, 
She doesn't close herself off to him for any reason, and she invites us to do the same. She invites us to hang in there. Uh, Hang in there. Faith is listening to Jesus' word as Jesus' word. Do you hear this? Uh, Recognizing the true character of God and refusing to believe that the Lord can be of bad faith. That he can, that's even in his character. Appealing, and appealing to God on behalf, on the basis of God's character, which is goodness and grace. So here's a question. So go to number two. How are you approaching God? On what basis are you approaching God right now? Is it based on your circumstances? Is it based on your expectations? Or is it based on God's character and God's character alone and what you know of God's character? What kind of faith do you have right now? And in your desperate moments, are you coming to God on the basis of who he is in, in boldly saying, I, I, can, I can do nothing, God, but I desire for you to heal me. I desire for you to show up in my life. Um, that's the first thing we learn here on this uh, basis of this woman's faith. Here's the second thing I want to talk about, which is the double meaning of Jesus' declaration. So we noted Jesus' two replies, verse 24 and 26, and those are both very stunning because at first glance, he seems to brush the woman off like, I'm not sent to you, <laughs> just Israel. And then he kind of tells her she's not part of the story, his plan here entire, like, oh, you're just a dog, right? Uh, which, you know, I don't care what your view of dogs is. Um, we're a very canine-loving culture. I'm just telling you right now, that's not a good move. That's a bad PR day for Jesus. Like, that's not something you tell people, right? And so uh, we read Jesus' first response, we're stunned. Like, how can he say that? But listen, there's, there's a lot more to what he's saying than meets the eye. Here's what I mean by that. When you read verses 24 and 26, the text actually doesn't tell us, when you read it in Greek, who Jesus is speaking to. There's, there's, it doesn't say Jesus said to the disciples, I'm only sent to Israel. Or said to the woman, is it right to give food to the dogs? He, he actually doesn't say it to anybody. It's like he's having a soliloquy or monologue or whatever. And, and there's no referent right there in the story for those verbs, when he speaks. Until verse 28, when he says clearly to the woman, woman, you have great faith. Before then, we have no idea who Jesus is speaking to in this story. And that's fascinating. Um, because if Jesus is, it, it, really, it really conditions the, your, your interpretation of the story. If Jesus is talking to the woman, for example, uh, as many commentators suggest he is, then we have to ask ourselves, why is he so reluctant to help her? When you know, previously in Matthew, now let's go back in Matthew, in chapter 8, he so freely and graciously helped a Canaanite man, a centurion. You know, enthusiastically, he says over this man in Matthew 8.10, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel, amongst any Israelites. Wow. So is it possible that Matthew somehow misremembered these stories? <laughs> like he got, he got the details wrong? That, or, or he put them out of place, that one happened actually before the other. That's what some people actually say. Or that Jesus only heals Gentiles on his own turf. You know, I guess those are possibilities. But none of them, when I seem to read this story, honor the integrity of the text we have, nor the character of Jesus. And so it seems to me that in speaking his mind here, he's actually speaking between their requests. Remember, the woman asks Jesus to heal her daughter. The disciples ask Jesus to send her away, and it seems like Jesus isn't speaking to either their, their requests directly. He's speaking between them rather than to them. Do you see the difference? So he's doing something gracious. He's giving all the characters in the story something that's vital to the formation of our faith, which is simply space and time. Space and time. We all need a little space and time. 
Uh, Dale Bruner, who's a prof- former professor at Whitworth, he has this beautiful commentary on this passage, and he says, for the woman, Jesus replies a sort of stay of execution that allows her to perhaps say to herself, at least he's listened to me, or hasn't listened to his disciples and gotten rid of me. I'm going to try him one more time. It gives her a little space and time. And for the disciples, Bruner says, it's putting in a speech what he elsewhere enacts. And here's what I mean by that. You'll remember in John chapter 8, this woman is caught in adultery, brought before Jesus, a similar but different story, by a group of men who are threatening to stone her, which was the lawful punishment for that sort of offense in that day. They stand her up before Jesus, by the way, in the middle of a worship service. Like, if you can imagine that here. Ugh. And so they accuse her of adultery, so they shame her. That was a shame and honor culture. And they're going to stone her right before their eyes. And so what does Jesus do? Do you remember this? Very curious, very odd, very weird thing. He doesn't speak to them. He, he acts between them. doesn't say anything. Just like in Matthew 15. He bends down and begins writing in the dirt, quietly. And nobody knows to this day. There's been tons. You could read tons of blog posts on this. Uh, that'll keep you up at night. Like what Jesus wrote. And it really doesn't matter because it's all about space and time, which are vital resources for the cultivation of our faith. So for the woman, he gave her space and time for her to, well, a stay of execution, talk about that, but also to realize that he has saving power for him to save her life, both spiritually and physically. For the men, in acting between their attempt to throw stones at her, he gave them space and time to consider their next move. If you remember that story, what happens next for the men after Jesus talks to them? One by one, they dropped their stones and went back to their homes. Space and time to consider the gravity of the situation, to consider if this is how they wanted to write their stories, if they wanted that on their record. So is that perhaps what Jesus is doing in Matthew 15 for this woman? That seems more consistent with his character than anything else in my mind. Speaking between the demands of these people rather than to them. Just space and time for their faith to grow. Inviting each of them to a new awareness of themselves as well as a new awareness of the situation. So, for example, by speaking between the d- demands of the disciples, he's, he's inviting them to rethink their deeply held traditions here. When he says, is it right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? There was a deeply held tradition here, a custom which was to feed house dogs. Well, we do this in our customs, our tables too, after eating everything yourself. So you just, you know, you didn't have leftovers, didn't have refrigerators then. So you just fed the rest of your food to your dog. And that was a custom, by the way, that informed relationships between Jews and Gentiles. This is where they got the term dogs from for Gentiles. Insiders, outsiders, rich and poor, male, male female, young, old, slave free. We'd say black and white in our, in our day. Well, I deserve to be at the table. You don't. And so I, f- I call you a dog. And, and so Jesus, as he does in other places, is pressing into their customary way of doing things and thinking about things and grouping people and arranging people in their society and seeing the world and asking the question, is that right? Is that right? Is that customary way of doing things and seeing the world and grouping people right to you? Think about it for a second. Think about it. And what's more, by speaking between rather than two, it presents new possibilities for this woman. So indeed, uh, it's presenting her with this opportunity to engage in what one commentator called a duel of wits with Jesus. So verse 26 again, is it right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? Verse 27, yes, it is, Lord. Like, that's pretty brash. Like, 
You know, I'm not a rabbi. You are. I'm not Jewish. I'm Canaanite. You are. Yeah, I know the answer. Because <laughs> even the dogs, I know the custom, eat the crumbs from their master's table. Do you see that pronoun, their? She believes she's actually part of the family here. That's a remarkable response. Um, both for how she identifies herself as, as, as part of the master's ecosystem. She, she's not a dog lingering at the margins of this story. She's a member of the family in some new and strange way. And, and, but also remarkable for its boldness. She recognizes and accepts the challenge within Jesus' invitation hidden there that nobody seems to understand. She says to him, I get your meaning. I get it. I get in the world's, I'm, I'm only, the world's eyes I'm only a dog. I don't even deserve to be in this home. I don't deserve to be right at your feet. But I get that you're good. I understand your character. I've seen what you've been up to. I understand who you're for. And because you're good, I get that in your eyes, which is all the only eyes that matter in this room, I'm part of the story. And because I'm part of the story, and this story's really about grace, I'm, I'm a worthy recipient of grace. Because grace is free. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done. <laughs> Bruner again says this about this story, that whatever Jesus' prior sentence meant, and she's perhaps not even entirely sure what it meant, she's sure of this one thing, that Jesus is moving almost imperceptibly toward her. And Jesus always moves toward us. He never moves away from us. She, ref- she refuses to look at the shadow side of this, the words, and instead grasps at what he did say and what he didn't say, which is this. He didn't say go away. He didn't say no. He said such an answer. Such terrific faith. I'm amazed. So she enters into what Jesus says as an invitation to relationship. She just allows herself to be claimed by the word of God. Have you ever allowed yourself just to be claimed by God's word to you? Read your Bible sometime and let that be the word of God to you, about you, who you really are. That's the point of the story. Jesus speaking between the demands to you, to you. So who are you in this story? As we move to this final point, are you a disciple? And might Jesus be inviting you to a new perspective on some things? Whether that's on personal things, a situation you're struggling with right now, you're struggling to maintain hope, or some deeply held convictions about what you think is right and wrong, uh, beliefs that you learned from childhood all the way up. How is Jesus speaking to you right now? between the lines of your life, between the demands of your life. It's inviting you to think, hmm, is that right? Or are you this woman, as Jesus is speaking to you about you, <laughs> saying, just inviting you to a new perspective on yourself. You're not a dog. That in your deep shame, deep brokenness, you're more loved than you ever imagined. Come to the table. Sit at the table with us. You're unimaginably loved. That's what Jesus declares for this woman. I want to heal you. I want to be in relationship with you. The world might think of you as a dog, You might be living with that story, uh, but Christ doesn't see you that way. He invites you to the table. Come to the table as a child. So can you hear that as Jesus' word to you today? Can you receive that? That's the second thing here, that Jesus, the double meaning of his words. Can you hear that double meaning for you? So here's the last thing, and then we'll we'll go out. And it has to do with the significance of the wider setting. And... um, I'll give you this story very briefly. In the later part of Matthew 15, we just find that Jesus leaves Tyre, goes back to Israel, to this all-too-familiar place uh, around the Sea of Galilee where he spent much of his time. And there's this, in this story, he ministers to this crowd of like 4,000 people. On this hillside, there's crippled people, there's deaf, there's blind, there's many other kinds. He heals them, he proclaims the grace of God, 
And people are just amazed by this as you read this story. Uh, And Matthew says this went on for three days. So this is like a, a revival meeting, nothing short of revival. And the disciples are with him. But when Jesus finished, after three days, he called the disciples and he says, I hurt for these people. Because for three days, they've been with me, and now they have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them home without a meal, because they'll probably collapse along the road, and then this will be all for naught. And as I read that statement in the later part of Matthew 15, earlier this week, I was immediately taken back to Tyre, and to that home where Jesus sat alone, well, with the disciples, with this woman, where they'd come for rest, and this woman who'd come for healing, that this thin place of encounter, and... uh Remember, thin places are intended to jolt us out of our old ways of seeing the world and seeing ourselves and relax us enough to experience this elusive thing we all long for, which is transformation. So can we hear Jesus' heart for this woman in this word at the end of the chapter that I don't want to send her away hungry. She's come a long way in her life, maybe not geographically. She might have just lived next door. But she's come a long way in her life that she could stand or sit or kneel before a rabbi from, from Israel have that kind of faith. She's come so far in her life. She's come over, overcome amazing obstacles. Her daughter is so sick. Just think of leaving your daughter at home to go seek healing somewhere else. And just to receive blessing. I don't want to send her home hungry because she might collapse along the way. Can you hear this word to the disciples? Like, how? <laughs> why would I want to send her away? She's hungry. And uh, he's not going to send her away at home, home hungry. Not, that's not his heart for this woman. And so how does he do it? If you look at the story we read, it seems like it's just a snap of the fingers for Jesus. Your faith is great. Your daughter's healed. You can go home. But if you put it in the context of the, of the later story, Matthew, at the end of Matthew, and the feeding of the 4,000, we actually see that we're involved in that healing. We're involved in this healing. The disciples earlier in the chapter missed their moment, and he's inviting them back into the story again. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus asked the disciples there, beside the Sea of Galilee, tells them, hey, these people are hungry. I'm not going to send them home. He says, do you have any bread? And lo and behold, because I mean, they're at the table, right? If you go back to this other story, they're, they're the children. you have any bread? Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, we've been hiding in our backpacks. We have seven loaves. Oh, and some fish, too. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> You know, it's a little bit of like, what are you doing hoarding this food? But they have this food. So he graciously takes the bread. He breaks it and the fish. He gives thanks for it, multiplies it, and then gives it back to the disciples to distribute to the people. And it says at the end of this chapter, all of them ate until they were satisfied. There's no crumbs this time, but real food, real provision, real grace. So do you see this? Is it right to take the children's bread and just toss it to the dogs? (laughs) Of course not, because there's no dogs. There's only family here. Uh, And we we have to come to understand this, because within our own theology, as we think of the way the Bible articulates God's character to us, we're not dogs, okay? But also, as we represent Christ to the world, there are no dogs out there. We have been given revelation from God that his sacred image rests on all people, All people are created in God's image that we, as well as the hungry in our lives, whoever those hungry are, okay? People outside of God's story, who think of themselves as outside of God's story, we might think of them 
uh, outside of God's story, the least and the last and the lost, they bear the image of God as his, their creator. There are no dogs, okay? And God says, distribute my grace to them. Distribute the food to them. And this is a vital word for our world today. As tribalism is, is rearing its ugly head again, as we infight over who's in, who's out, who can be at the table, who can get only crumbs, uh, who, who we, who's, who, who's, who's really loved by God, you know? Whatever their religion, ethnicity, orientation is, like who's, who are the chosen people, right? It, it informs our calling to be the peace of Christ in a world of fear, like unifying people rather than dividing them back up. It informs our sacred calling in daily relationships as well. You know, as we care for those around us in our lives, whether that's a parent or, or a neighbor who are aging and, and struggling with loneliness, some of us are doing that, that great work, or a friend or a colleague or one of our own children who would never consider faith in Christ as part of their own story and their own daily living. This informs our sacred calling as disciples of Jesus to be the presence of Christ in the world today to share the goodness of God that we receive all the time as bread from the table. Distribute that freely. And because we've been freely distributed too. So are we merely eating all we want? <laughs> kind of keeping the seven loaves for ourselves, are we freely feeding those in our lives? That's the question here at the end. Are we clinging to our experience of God every time we come to God's presence and our privilege and our rights and our blessings? Are we leasing those things, unleashing them into our communities and our families and our workplaces, just saying we're gonna, God's going to keep providing because that's who he is. He's good. He wants to be good to us and he wants to feed everybody, right? That's our calling to be instruments of distribution, sort of this part of the supply chain of God's hope in the world. And it's because that's our calling. Uh, take out, you've probably hopefully received this little prayer of St. Francis in your bulletin this morning. I'd like to invite us, because it kind of hits on some of these themes, to pray this corporately. Um, it's, it's actually debated whether he was the original author of this prayer, but don't let that distract you, because he embodied this prayer. Like, I read that during the Crusades, he traveled all the way to Egypt uh, from France to engage in peaceful dialogue with the head of the Muslim forces, the Sultan, at which a, a meeting in which there was forgiveness and respect and understanding and prayer, and he helped bring an end to that era. I mean, think of that. Just a kind of, a, at that time, a no-name monk from France. Uh, he has a word for us in an age of violence. He embraced lepers as a, as a calling, leveling washing their swords. He has a word for us as we seek meaning in our work, whether we think our work matters or not, as we come alongside people who are suffering. Uh, as a young man, he found himself deep within the fog of, of uh, doubt, uh, you know, whether God cared for him or not. <laughs> so he has a word for us that are on the knife edge between faith, or a belief and unbelief. They're struggling with, we want, do, we want, do I want to stay in this Christian story anymore? Francis has a word for us. So I want to pray this prayer with you. Uh, so I'd invite us to stand. It'll be on the screen. I just wanted you to have this copy. In case you don't have one at home, you can have this on the fridge. And you'll notice the first couple lines I put into the, um, the plural here, Lord, make us, or maybe I didn't. The screen has it in the plural. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there's hatred, let us so love. I just thought that would be a good thing for us to do as we pray this. So let's pray this prayer together. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there's hatred, let us sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith.
Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we're pardoned. It's in dying that we're born to eternal life. Amen. Lord, this is our prayer. Um, And so as we respond now by um, continuing to worship you, we ask you to meet us in the longings of our hearts, um, the questions of our hearts and um, our hopes, God. Would you would you encounter with, or would you meet us in this time, God? And as we encounter you, uh, would you shape our calling? Pray in Christ's name.